I think we're in much better shape now for environmental pollution because we know more about what microbes can and can't do in processing wastes or cleaning up environments. So that's certainly important to society because always the microbial process for cleaning up pollutants is the cheapest if you can get it to work. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Hi, and welcome to episode 36 of the Genomics Podcast. I am super excited about today's show because it covers one of my favorite topics in science, microbial ecology. That's the study of microbial relationships with one another and with their environment. But our story today is not just about the microbes. It's also about their impact on all of us. Microbes are literally everywhere on our planet, and their presence impacts every single ecosystem on Earth. A classic example is nitrogen fixation, and that's a process where microbes convert atmospheric nitrogen into a form that plants and most other organisms can actually access and use. Now, without that microbial process, all of that nitrogen, 78% of the atmosphere, would be totally useless to us. And that's just one example. But despite their critical importance to life on Earth, scientists actually know fewer than 1% of microbial species. It's partly because scientists have historically relied on studying microbes that they could cultivate and grow in the laboratory. These lab-grown strains represent only a small subset of the massive microbial diversity that's actually present in nature. Next-generation sequencing, or NGS, techniques have given scientists a much greater opportunity to understand the complexity and diversity of microbes and their environments. Today I'm joined by Dr. James Tija. Jim is University Distinguished Professor of Microbiology and Molecular Genetics and of Plant, Soil, and Microbial Sciences. And he's also Director of the Center for Microbial Ecology at Michigan State University. Jim's research focuses on microbial ecology, and he's a pioneer in the use of genomics to better understand microbial functions in their environment. Jim Tija, I want to really thank you for taking some time out and agreeing to join us on the Illumina Genomics podcast and talk about some of the work you're doing. We were just talking, you said you've been at Michigan State for over 50 years now. Correct. So I wonder what genomics looked like 50 years ago. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll get into that discussion <laughs> a little bit. But So I always think of you as one of the pioneers in applying genomics technologies to try to understand biology and even the taxonomy of different microbes in, in really different environments. So can you briefly talk about your scientific background, you know, how you got involved in this work? And maybe now that I know you've been here for such a long time, how this field has evolved over that time? So I grew up on a farm in Iowa, and in that environment... Lots of microbes. Lots of microbes. Iowa soil is very good, and so I knew that was an important aspect. And when I went to college, then I uh, was interested in sort of more complex science, interested in chemistry, but then I saw chemistry sort of merge with uh, the soil environment. Then I realized that the soil physics was also complex and the biology even more complex. And uh, after my junior year, I worked on a project mapping rhizobium serotypes in soybeans across the state of Iowa. (laughs) So that gave me an insight into the diversity of microbes and how they were influenced by the environment. It showed me 
about the microbial world and the new methodologies that was serotyping at that period of time, long before omics. Yep. That led me then to go to graduate school in basically microbial ecology. My age was at the time when microbial ecology began to really expand. Mm -hmm. And that's gone through several uh, decades, as I call them. First doing a lot of work with new HPLCs and GL gas chromatographs. Uh, then came uh, the PC, the right. computer. Right. So then we could do modeling. Then came the ability to extract DNA from the soil environment and other environments as well. And then use that DNA to interrogate more about the microbial community in these various environments. So PCR had come along, right? PCR and 16S. had come along. Yes, 16S. I remember hearing Greg Venter talk oh, wow. at the ASM meeting when he <laughs> talked about the first genome of a microbe. Wow. And uh, the room was silent <laughs> because everyone knew that their life had just changed. Wow. Uh, so that was about 1995, and then in 2007, I co-chaired with Joe Handelsman the uh, National Research Council's report on the new science of metagenomics. So that was a decade later, and at that time I was interested in helping uh, develop the field of metagenomics, which sort of transitioned into the microbiome, because I saw this as a big science field with a big opportunity and maybe we could guide it in a productive direction. Now we're 10 years past that, and so we're at a stage of, of thinking about what's next. Yeah, that's interesting. What are the impacts yeah, for that's, going forward? That's actually really cool, and I think one of the things I heard you talk about when you were going through some of the evolution is some of the technological developments that really impacted what was possible in the field. I want to drive a little bit deeper on next-generation sequencing, or NGS, because I think NGS in particular has kind of made this genomic analysis much more accessible to more diverse array of, of scientists around the world. So what has been the impact of NGS, maybe on the field more broadly, but more specifically on, on your work? Because the microbial world is so complex in most habitats, certainly I would argue that the soil habitat is the most complex at an organismal and a genomic level. But even simpler habitats, like the intestinal tract, <laughs> is still is still pretty complex. <laughs> and so that complexity requires methodologies to understand it. And what genomics has applied and NGS sequencing has uh, provided is an opportunity to more comprehensively understand that environment. Before, it was working with isolates. And we were only sampling a small set of the community usually portions of the community that were easily isolated. Mm -hmm. So with the omics, we can sample everything. Right. The big data approach. That's right. Yeah. Yep. You've talked about the soil microbiome and the, the human gut microbiome, and there are a lot of really interesting environments out there. And you guys are looking at a lot of different, really, really different interesting environments. Is there one of those environments in terms of genomics analysis that really you think is really interesting, and why do you think that particular environment is really interesting? So I would still go back to the soil environment as the most interesting one because of its complexity and its long history. So one sort of at a fundamental level area that has continued to interest me is to understand how that community has evolved over the presumably around three and a half billion years of existence. Uh, it's certainly adapted to very low nutrient stressful conditions. It's a very 
in a way, protective environment, so it harbors a lot of local diversity. So omics then holds the record, the record of the history oh, of wow. that community. Yeah, so uh, how it evolved, how uh, ecological selection has driven it to where it is, what are the genetic differences between the organisms, those kinds of uh, sort of fundamental questions on sort of organization of this long history of the terrestrial environment. Yeah, the history of our planet, basically. Right. Getting access to that. Can you talk a little bit about the, the technology platforms, you know, in addition to some of the genomics analysis that you use in the lab? What are the most important aspects of those platforms? And I, I read that you're using array-based approaches these days, and I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, because I think that's, that's really interesting for a lot of our listeners. Yes. So we began with array-based approaches before the sequencing was... Uh, was affordable. <laughs> at least it's at affordable scale, now, right? At, at least at the scale <laughs> needed. Uh, and and these array technologies are are still useful because one can uh, still gain a lot of information relative to, but based on what we already know from a sequence point of view. Mm-hmm. So those technologies are important. I think the the sort of bait and capture approaches, which are kind of array based, are also important because then we can pull out sequences of interest. So in the last decade, I would say that my research has focused more on what we call eco-functional genes. In other words, genes that control, directly control important ecological functions, Mm -hmm. such as the genes of the nitrogen cycle. Okay. So that's critical in soil and ocean environments as well. Also genes important in, in, in the carbon cycle but genes important in biodegradation of pollutants, uh, genes important in biofilm formation, uh, in signaling between organisms, in antibiotic resistance. In other words, those genes that carry out processes that pay the bill. Right, yeah. How do we understand those in, in a more comprehensive way? And what we know from the NGS approach is a lot of those genes have a lot of genetic diversity that we wouldn't recognize otherwise just just from isolates. I want to pick up on this bioremediation because I, I think that's that's a really important topic and one of the other environmental topics that's been in the news quite a lot for quite a long time now is in global warming and the impact that that has on our environment. So are you doing any kind of research to kind of understand how these environments are adapting to warmer climates and, and what the impact of that is? Yes, I've been involved in a project with uh, other collaborators at other institutions on uh, uh, climate change project. Uh, one site in Alaska, also a site in uh, Greenland. Wow. And a site in the Midwest, US also. Another aspect of this climate change is, has to do with land use change. Mm-hmm. And we have a site in Brazil in which we've studied land use change from native rainforest to pasture, and then some of that eventually then converting to sorghum production also for beef production. So these kinds of uh, changes in that soil environment, how does that influence the microbial community? So the, just the way that you use the land, the way that you use the soil has a huge impact on the microbial composition that's present there? It has an impact. The question is, uh, is it a huge impact? Right. Uh, and how you scale that. I would say it isn't a huge impact because the diversity is all, already very high. And uh, the organisms have adapted to a lot of change in their <laughs> They've history. They've seen a lot worse, right? That's right, uh, a change in their history. But there is change. 
one of the projects I was reading about that you, you've been involved in is using comparative genomics to look at how ecology and the environment influences microbial genome structure and evolution. So I'm wondering if you can describe that work in particular, you know, what you're finding. And I, I'm really interested in that because I've talked to a number of people on the podcast who are involved in microbial genomics, and they all tell me the same thing, that this concept of species at the microbial level is, is really not that relevant anymore, and we kind of have to come up with a new definition of what species means or even if that's useful. I think one of the most useful things over the last decade of NGS has been in comparative genomics and what we can learn from that such as what are the gene differences between organisms, and then how is that important? What makes a pathogen or a non-pathogen, for example? Mm-hmm. Or what makes an uh, organism that better competes for PCBs versus some organism that doesn't use PCBs so well? So we gain that kind of information from comparative genomics. But we can also use that to better understand species. And I and some key students have worked on that for over a decade now. And I think we have a pretty good understanding now of what species uh, are. The concept we came up with more than a decade ago is the average nucleotide identity between organisms in their gene content. And it now seems to be that 95% average nucleotide identity corresponds to the species level for many organisms. Okay. Not all, but for many. So it's a good average. And it's much easier to determine species this way than the old classical way of DNA hybridization or other methodologies. Right. If you're looking at two microbes and they are, let's say, 92% identical at the nucleotide level, you would still say that those are, those are divergent enough to be different species? The first blush would be <laughs> that they are different species. Wow. You should do more than that. Yeah. But yes, I would say... Because en- enough sequencing has been done now that one can see that this is a, a pretty reasonable first level for a cutoff. Interesting. What are some of the societal impacts in kind of having a better understanding of these microbial environments and how they function? Actually, in microbial ecology, what makes it interesting beyond the fundamental complexity is that many questions important to society relate to microbes. So we talked about climate change earlier, and the microbes in the soil and ocean environments produce and consume all of the important greenhouse gases. So how does that change with what we do, with what climate does, and so forth? So that's microbially driven. So that would be one kind of example. Bioremediation or pollutant destruction is another one that's been a very big topic for for 50 years, I, I would say. And one of the things that we found that maybe was my most important contribution was finding organisms that dechlorinate chlorinated pollutants and gain energy from that so that they uh, want to do that. Wow. I mean, that gives them an advantage over any other organisms because they gain energy from that dechlorination reaction. But I think we're in much better shape now for environmental pollution because we know more about what microbes can and can't do in processing waste or cleaning up environments. So that's certainly important to society because always the microbial process for cleaning up pollutants is the cheapest if you can get it to work. 
You talked about your background growing up on a farm, and I'm just thinking that there must be some impact on agriculture in kind of having a better understanding of these soils. Right. Just as uh, uh, many people now are aware of the human microbe, right? microbiome. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I know there are and, lots of microbiomes out there. Right, and the importance of the microbiome in the intestinal tract to human health and uh, other microbiomes associated with us. But the microbiome associated with plants also is equally important. And so going back to the agricultural setting, then the microbes that associate with plants are important to their nutrition, their function, their resistance to disease. And in short, they help make plant productivity more sustainable with lower input costs. And that's going to be important as you know, the population of the planet exceeds whatever, 9 or 10 billion or something. And we're going to need to be much more productive with the farms that we, that we currently have with the land that's, that's arable. That's right. It's so exciting to hear about how this work is impacting society and how far this, this kind of research has come over the past 50 years. So maybe we don't have to cover the next 50 years, but over the next 5 or 10 years, what are the things that excite you the most about microbial ecology? What, what are the advances that you think might drive this field forward? And, and where do you think the field is going to be five or 10 years from now? So one research topic that I work on now that I'm very interested in is antibiotic resistance oh, in right. the environment. Not in the human gut microbiome, but... Right, right. I mean, it, it's important in all aspects. But my background and interest would be more on the environmental aspects, which have been underrepresented in this topic. So, you know, that more than three-fourths of the antibiotics produced are not used in human health. They're used in agriculture. They're used in agriculture and in aquaculture, in, in fish, shrimp, crab farms, and those kinds of things, as well as in agriculture. So those are big environmental, uh, big uses that end up uh, with an environmental source of antibiotic resistance. So what about this is important and can we mitigate risks that, that come from that? So that's where sequencing becomes important also because we need to understand those genes, the diversity in those genes, so we can track them. And that then leads to steps in trying to break the cycle between an environmental source and humans acquiring that resistance. Certainly some of the important resistances do come from uh, environmental uses. As we think about it, uh, this is a global problem because any super-resistant strain or multi-drug-resistant strain or extra-resistant strain is only a plane ride away from that's right. anybody else. Yeah, that's right. So we need to think about it in, in the global context. And one of the things that relates to NGS in this regard is the greatest risk comes from horizontal transfer of these genes. Horizontal transfer, you mean uh, one Between, microbe? From one microbe a... to another microbe. Because in the environment, it could be a harmless commensal organism is picking up resistance because it's in the fecal material coming from pig farms, putting on, put on soil, and so forth. But if that is next to a pathogen, then can that resistance be transferred to that pathogen? So here, we need long-read sequencing. That's where I'm going for. Because the biggest element of risk then relates to the potential for horizontal transfer of linked genes. Jim, it was fantastic talking to you. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this work. And like I said, I've, I've been a fan of yours for a really long time. And thanks for joining us on the Illumina Genomics podcast. Okay, enjoyed it. Yes. 
Genomics technologies, especially NGS, have helped scientists better understand the diversity of microbes that are present in multiple habitats. Some of society's biggest challenges, like climate change, greenhouse gases, and pollution, ultimately relate to microbes. So this improved understanding of microbial ecology is fundamentally important for the health of our planet and all of us. Hey, if you like today's show, why not subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It's totally free, and you can even ask for our show from Siri, Alexa, or your Google Assistant. Just say, play the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Drs. Connie Krasick and Rusty Jones of the Van Andel Research Institute. We'll be discussing the relationship between metabolism, cancer, and the immune system here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast.